You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading tonight comes from Joshua chapter 11, beginning in verse 16. So Joshua took all that land, the hill country and all the Negev and all the land of Goshen and the lowland and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its lowland from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir as far as Baal God in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the lands of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that even in difficult passages like these, that you have our good in mind, that you have your glory in mind, that you have the salvation of your people in mind, that you have your grace and your love and your kindness on the world in mind. And so we pray that you would lift our eyes, our hearts, our hands to Jesus as a result of thinking more clearly through Joshua 10, 11, and 12. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Hello, everyone. It's so good to see you all this evening. Stay cool. Uh, we need to start bringing some fans. We're finding something. Uh, we're doing. We're hanging in there. Uh, it is 2023. You guys know this, uh, which means next year is 2024. That is good math. Uh, which means, do you guys know what will happen next month? Do you? The very first Republican presidential debate, and the people groaned. Uh, it's already heating up. But come August 23rd, it's about to be all national politics all the time for the next 12 months or so, as if it actually ever stops. But there are going to be opinions. There are going to be hot takes. There will be takes. So just get ready, all right? There are going to be promises made. There will be expectations in our own hearts and minds. But here we are in 2023 with almost every single American frustrated, with almost every single American uh, disenchanted, indifferent, uh, perhaps passionately angry about politics. We're all thinking in our own hearts and our minds, like, things would be so much better if, and then fill in the blank, if uh, we got the right person in charge, if I were in charge, if we could get the right person, elect the right person, wouldn't it be nice if that person could then just, like, stay president beyond uh, the term limits, right? 
Uh, if that person, the right person, could just rule and give laws and uh, exercise justice as king. If that person, this new king, could put an end to the disorienting moral insanity that we see and that we read and that we experience, just to bring some sense of stability in our culture, to bring some sense of order, a renewed sense of uh, cultural and social coherence that would bind us more clearly together, wouldn't that be better? In fact, some might say, as we have been reading and slowly moving our way through this book of Joshua over the past few months, we might think as we're thinking and reading this book, now I'm not sure about all this military violence and all, I'm, I don't really have a sword, and that sounds pretty terrible, but at least in this time, the people knew who God was, and at least in this time, the people knew who they were. They knew what it meant to worship God. They knew what it meant to obey God. And look what happened here. God blessed them. He brought peace to the land. That's what I'm saying. That's what we need. Now we're going to pick up right where we left off last week in chapter 10, about halfway through, and get all the way through chapter 12 tonight. We've basically been doing a chapter a week. We're going to pick up the pace and the speed a bit because that's exactly what the narrator does here in the book of Joshua. There are massive and monumental battles that happen in these two and a half chapters, bigger than actually anything that we've seen before in the book so far, bigger than AI, bigger than Jericho, bigger than anything we've seen. But the narrator here is not actually all that concerned about the details of these battles. He's more concerned with the result of these battles, and so will we too tonight. So with everything that we just thought, thought through by way of introduction to this, and then everything that we see in these two and a half chapters, we're going to think and ask of this text tonight two questions. What kind of kingdom did Joshua lead? And then secondly, in, in response to that, what kind of kingdom should we want? So what kind of kingdom did Joshua lead? And then what kind of kingdom should we presently today, now, here in Albuquerque, what should we want? We're going to use the first question to get through the text. And then I'm going to zoom out a bit, uh, perhaps try to give us a bigger and wider perspective on both the rest of the Bible, but also 21st century American hopes and expectations. A little bit different. I, we've never really done this to talk about politics before, but we're going to do it tonight. So... Uh, First of all, what kind of kingdom did Joshua lead? Last week, we saw Joshua lead Israel in a responsive war to defend Israel's new allies, the Gibeonites. They, Israel sweeps south, and they rout these five city-states who attacked Gibeon. And we saw last week, in a pretty gruesome scene, that Joshua executes their kings, these five kings. We thought about that God opposes those who oppose him. And then we saw, or we will see, if we were spent the time to go through the second half of chapter 10, we read about the utter and absolute complete conquest of southern Canaan, the southern part of the land that Israel has now come into. There is nothing left of opposition against Israel in the land of Canaan in the south by the time that we get to chapter 11. Now we're going to swing back around to this in just a moment when we get to chapter 11 to describe in greater detail the conquest, conquest of the north, but man, what? 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 Like, if you reach the end of chapter 10, and if you even were listening to the things that Stephanie was reading in chapter 11, we've talked about some of this stuff already in the book of Joshua, but this is tough stuff. Stuff like verse 30 in chapter 10. And the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel, and he struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it. He left none remaining in it, and he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. This is gruesome, grisly stuff. Some of suggested that Joshua might have misinterpreted what God wanted. 
God gave him some commands and then this bloodthirsty guy uh, misinterpreted what God actually wanted. Or the narrator is perhaps like using God to justify uh, Joshua's military violence, that a good God would never command such a thing. Or maybe the supposed God of the Bible did command such a thing. And what does that make him? The God of the Bible then becomes this genocidal uh, moral monster. And so if God does exist, then he must not be trustworthy. So therefore, if he's not trustworthy and he's a God, then he probably doesn't exist. You Christians are so silly and pitiable, believing in these ancient legends and tall tales. But what if Joshua understood God correctly? Is God good to command such a thing? We've already had some touch-and-go explanations and considerations about this topic over the past several months, so I'm not going to repeat everything that I or Jordan have said about this. But again, this is not ethnic cleansing. This is idolatry cleansing. This conquest was to be a very focused, time and location specific strategic move to provide Israel a land, a land of like incubation for the promises and the kingdom of God, that it might grow and it might be protected. God would give Israel no taste for wider conquest or empire building. He would give them just a little strip of land about the size of New Jersey and no more. That all of God's sanctions wars from here on out would be defensive wars. We also should reiterate that God was using Israel as his sword of judgment. It is not that God said, all right, Israel, here's this strip of land for you all to live in. Unfortunately, whoops, there's some people already living there. So I'm going to need you just to kill everyone. The point that I made last week about Adonizedek, the king of Jerusalem in Joshua 10. Adonizedek being like the carnival mirror inverse of Melchizedek the king of Jerusalem in Genesis 14, is that here in Genesis 10, unlike in Genesis 14, there is no one left in the land who recognizes God, who comes to worship God. There is no one left. God told Abraham back in Genesis 14 and then in Genesis 15, the next chapter, that he would not give his family the land until 400 more years. Why? Because of the sin of the Canaanites did not yet warrant full-scale judgment in the time of Abraham. But now that time had come. This is a wicked, wicked culture in a society that, that Israel is walking into. So the conquest is over and over and over again portrayed and seen as a liberation. A liberation for those who would actually align themselves with Israel. People like Rahab. A liberation of cities that justice and righteousness might live in their houses and walk in their streets. A liberation of the land to be freed for the purposes which God intended it for, that Israel, often described as God's son, might work and keep the land with godly and faithful stewardship. But let's turn the page over to chapter 11. And there's much more to say there. Perhaps you can go back and listen to some other sermons or meet me for coffee this week. I'd love to talk through some of these very difficult things. But let's turn the page over to chapter 11. The south of Canaan is settled. But then we read... In verse 1, that when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard this, heard that all of this conquest had been happening in the south, uh, he gets angry, just like many of the other kings. Hazor is about 10 miles northwest of the Sea of Galilee, way up in the north, not far from Capernaum, which is where we've been walking through the Gospel of Luke uh, earlier in this year, where, where much of Jesus' ministry happens in the Gospel. This is here. Hazor is a major city in this time. It is the most significant and politically important city in the entire region. It makes Jericho look like a village. And Jabin, 
acts just like a northern counterpart to the southern Adonizedek. He gets several of the northern city-state warlords together, and he gathers them to destroy Israel once and for all before they can wipe them out. He has an enormous army, a great horde, 11.4 says. A great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore, which is an uncountable number. With, and get this, very many horses and chariots. This is the first introduction of horses and chariots in the book of Joshua. Egypt had them. We saw this in the book of Exodus, but this is a technological and military game changer. It'd be like saying, yeah, Israel walked into the battlefield or walked onto the battlefield with swords and spears, but this army had guns and artillery. Like Napoleon's army was good, but they walked onto the battlefield at Waterloo and their enemy on the battlefield that day had tanks or F-16s. As alert readers in Joshua 11, we should read this verse and say, uh-oh, it's been a good run, Israel, but it's over. This is the end of the road for Israel because of horses and chariots. Instead, what should come as a moment of unreal tension, of this thing might end, actually just becomes like a half a sentence anecdote. It doesn't matter if they have horses or chariots or tanks or artillery or F-16s. God tells Joshua in verse 6, do not be afraid of them. For tomorrow at this time, I will give over all of them. And God does. In like half a sentence, the armies are utterly destroyed. They burn the chariots. They hamstring the horses, which means to cut a tendon in the back of the horse's thigh that makes them no longer able to pull chariots. It's basically hobbling the military machine. Kind of like, like uh, God's telling Joshua to like shred or rip the, the treads off of a tank. And then in verse 10, in what is probably the understatement of the entire book, Joshua turned back and captured Hazor. I want to hear that story. This is a bigger city than Jericho, and that's all we get. It's a gigantic city, and it's all we get. But the point in all of this is it's so forgettable. These are forgettable kings, forgettable warlords. They lead forgettable and futile oppositions against God. And in so much of the rest of the chapter, uh, Joshua does what God had told him to do, which just like wipes out an, an interpretation of this book where Joshua might have misheard or misunderstood what God wanted. In verse 9, Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. In the verse 12, he completely destroyed the kings. How? Just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. Verse 15, just as the Lord had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua. And so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. The prophetic nature of Joshua's role of speaking on behalf of God to the people, of leading the people and how God wants this, this role of prophetic leader has now fully now been handed over from Moses to Joshua. And Israel is benefiting from Joshua's courage, is benefiting from Joshua's obedience. And what's the result? Verses 16 and 17, it basically sum up that all of the north of Canaan is conquered, just as the south had. Now the north has been conquered. But remember, the storytelling pace here is on mega fast forward. Verse 18 simply just says this, that Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. This is a many, many years process. If, if it's been walking slowly, the narrative has in Joshua 1 through 9 of very meticulous details, now we get like years in just like, again, half a sentence. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. This is a slow and difficult season of conflict, of constant battle, 
And then what finally happens in verse 19. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. And then we get actually the only theological explanation in the entire book for why the Canaanites continued to oppose and refuse to make peace. Verse 20. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. This English phrase, hardened their hearts, is the exact same phrase that is used in Exodus of Pharaoh. In both places, it could be translated that God uh, stiffened their resolve, meaning God isn't causing the Canaanites nor Pharaoh to do anything that they would not have already done. They aren't choosing a path now that they were not already on. They are not robots just like wishing that they could just honor and please the Lord with their lives, but then God just won't let them and makes them turn away from him. In both places, in Exodus and in Joshua, it seems that God is giving Pharaoh and the Canaanites over to their desires. They see their stubbornness. They see their own inclinations as trustworthy, as good. And so God stiffens those inclinations. He hardens those that stubbornness, so that they would continue in their opposition. Why? In Pharaoh's case, so that Pharaoh would completely, completely free Israel. That God could redeem his firstborn son in the face of the death of, Israel, or of Egypt's firstborn sons. That the name and fame of Yahweh would be heard and known throughout the entire region. In Canaan's case here, so that Israel would have a place completely free of Canaanite idolatry of Canaanite wickedness and injustice, the 400-year time of sin and wickedness, the complete and utter rejection of God had now come due for judgment. And all of this is the concluding point of the end of chapter 12. Because of the complete destruction of the Canaanite way of life, there is 31 kings listed out. It is a checklist at the end of chapter 12 that all, all that Joshua had defeated. The threats are gone. And so now what? Back to chapter 11, verse 23. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. Finally. The rest of the book is how Joshua divides these tribal allotments. And just a heads up, uh, we're moving quickly here. Next week, we're going to tackle chapters 13 through 21 in one sermon. Why? Uh, because it's basically all about this tribe getting this piece of land, this tribe getting this piece of land, this tribe getting this piece of land. Uh, Israel is receiving its inheritance of peace, a newly recreated Eden, a land to dwell with God and to know him. So we're going to get through that all next week. But here, the land has rest from war. It is a new time, a first time in Israel's life where they can like look around and exhale. They can build a house. They can plant some crops. They're at rest. They know God. They have heard God and obeyed him. They are clear on their purpose. They are aligned in their hope for the future. They agree on the law. They agree on societal norms. They know and they trust each other as neighbors because they celebrate the same things and they reject the same things. Sounds great, huh? This is the best way forward, isn't it? Shouldn't it be? Even if we don't get a sword and shield and start putting people to death, 
in our understanding, uh, putting people to death who are not obeying the Lord, worshiping as he ought, we, maybe if we don't do that, we should actually be doing more to build and settle a governmental system that more clearly acknowledges its authority as first, what? Under God. So that it can dictate and legislate what God wants and punish what God doesn't want, right? Well, with some nuance, no. This is not what our effort as Christians should primarily be about. We should not be about promoting a governmental system that enacts and enforces knowledge of God and obedience to his word. So, admittedly, I went a little faster through these chapters than perhaps in other weeks, but I want to, if we're ever going to talk about some of these questions, I think this might be the text to do it. If this is the kind of kingdom that Joshua led, a political kingdom of national and covenantal obedience to the law of God, won by and enforced by the sword, if that's what Joshua led, should we want it? What kind of kingdom should we want? All right. Right off the bat here, I want to share with you how I've changed in my thinking about some of these issues over the past few years. And hang in there with me before you assume something that I'm actually not saying. I used to think, along with several influential voices, writers, pastors in my life, that this, the death of so-called Bible Belt Christianity was a good thing. For years and years, for, for decades in American life, where many Americans believe that because they were Americans, because maybe they went to church a few times every year, that they were Christians, that they were Christians because they were American, and their parents and their grandparents were Christians. Which, by the way, if this is your first time to come to church this year, welcome. We're so glad you're here. You have picked an interesting Sunday to be here, but I am convinced that uh, God is calling you into deeper joy and that he has purpose in your life, but to, that you might know him and serve him with joy with your whole life. But welcome. We're glad you're here. Hang in there with me. And yet, while all of that was or while it's maybe good that, uh, well, let me, let me rephrase this. While maybe like traditional values, the traditional family values that may have kept many children in intact families in the 1950s and the 60s, and then less so in the 70s, 80s, and beyond, uh, some, and maybe even I, would have concluded, yeah, that's all great, but that's hardly revival. Giving people a false assurance of their belonging to Christ merely because they have the right values, because they're American, because they have the right family values, or they perhaps vote for the right candidates or whatever. Giving people false assurance for all of that puts them in eternal danger because there is nothing saving about family values or politics or whatever. And so I used to think, you know what? The loss of Bible Belt Christianity and fake faith is actually a good thing. Bring on the persecution, actually. Persecution, making it more difficult to be a Christian in America, it will make following Christ costly, and it will separate more clearly the wheat from the chaff, as Jesus would say. It will more clearly separate the sheep from the goats. And while there is some truth in that, it is good for people to count the cost and to be clear in what it means to follow Jesus. While it's true that keeping children in intact families isn't revival, there's nothing saving in that, Here's where I've changed a little bit. Maybe culturally that's something worth preserving. 
The reason why Billy Graham was so successful in his evangelism of the 1950s and 60s and 70s is because he was preaching to a culture that was largely aware of categories like God, like sin, like repentance. There was such thing as morality. And so when he said repent to huge stadiums of like 50,000 people, the soil of that culture was better cultivated for people to hear the gospel and to respond. And that's a good thing. He was preaching in Bible Belt Christianity. That was a rich soil prepared for actual repentance. And so here's the thing, though. If you pressed my logic of about five years ago, shoot, maybe even three years ago, that actually bring on the persecution, the death of Bible Belt Christianity is a good thing. I think that I would have had to conclude that it is better for Christians to live in a place like North Korea than Nashville, Tennessee. It's better. We have to be more clear in our faith. But while our North Korean brothers and sisters must count the cost every day, their their faith in Christ is undoubtedly deeper and more moment by moment moment real uh, for them than it is for most of us. I don't think any North Korean Christians are praying for greater cultural and governmental opposition to the church in the rest of the world so that the rest of the world can experience what they experience, that the sheep would be more clearly separated from the goats. I'm actually confident that most Christians today and millions through history would gladly change their circumstances for ours. Of living in a society where they can freely gather with other believers, where they can pray together, where they can read the Bible together without fear of persecution or death. And so what you'll notice that I didn't just do is compare our culture to North Korea or even to a place like Nigeria where 50,000 Christians have been killed over their, over their, because of their faith over the last decade. We American Christians are not persecuted victims or martyrs and yet the soil of American culture today is absolutely not as fertile as it was in the 1950s, in the 1960s. There is just as much a need for people to individually repent of their sins now as there was then. But today, there is not an assumption that God exists, but that he doesn't. Today, there is not an assumption that sin is real, but values are merely social constructs, that they are not only unreliable, but they are best to be torn down. Sin is certainly not to be repented of, but to be actually and openly and publicly celebrated and affirmed. Today, expressive individualism, that is, what makes me who I am is what I project to others. Because of that, you, others, the rest of society must validate and celebrate who I project that I am, or else you are evil, you are wicked, dare I say you are the sinful one. This understanding of the self and of society is so far removed from the world of the Bible, it is so far removed from the world of cultures past throughout all of human history, outside of just like the very recent industrialized West of just the past few decades. It is new, it is dangerous, it is cracking the frameworks of society, and I do not overstate. And yet, an increasing number of Christians today are rightly concerned about everything that I just said and then conclude, therefore, that it is time to be bold and courageous like Joshua once again. That the experiment of American liberalism, that is of American exchange of free ideas, has failed and that time is over. What we should really be about is gaining control over the levers of government because any authority 
that government has is a God-given authority, is a God-delegated authority. And so the argument then goes something like this, that first, government has a duty to promote true religion. Christianity is true religion. Therefore, government has a duty to promote Christianity. Christians should now put our efforts primarily in elections, in legislation, in enforcement, so that we can once again have a Christian society or a Christian nation. Now, ignoring the question of whether or not we can say historically that America has ever been a Christian nation, should Christians now abandon the American liberal experiment and actually hope to, like the early centuries of the Protestant Reformation, try to more closely marry the church and the state so that Washington, D.C. is both more concerned and willing to enforce the true and right worship of God of the God of all creation. After all, this is what Joshua did. So shouldn't we just obey and follow in the footsteps of the courage of Joshua? No, no, no. Why? Well, the first thing that we absolutely must recognize is the change from old covenant to new. That in the old covenant, God covenanted himself to a particular people with a particular geographic land, with a particular place of localized worship under a covenant with a particular law, the law of Moses. And in the new covenant of Christ, God covenants himself not to any of that, but to people of all nations, from every tribe and language, who worship not at a localized temple, but in spirit and in truth wherever they are. And while the law was a helpful teacher and tutor for Israel for centuries, it has now been obeyed and fulfilled in its entirety by Jesus Christ, the true Israel, the true Son of God. And God covenants himself to people no longer nationally, no longer ethnically or politically or even familially. He covenants with individual people who come through the mediating work of his Son, that it is appointed for every man, individually and responsibly, to die first and then face judgment. And so while in the Old Covenant there were blessings of peace, there were blessings of safety and of land and of rest based on Israel's national obedience, there is no such thing any longer for a modern nation-state to be covenanted to God because God has not covenanted himself to nation-states or political bodies in the New Covenant of Christ. It's this misunderstanding that caused British settlers in the New World to wrongly think that they were reliving the book of Joshua. They were going finally into a new promised land given to them by God, naming their towns, the names of places like Canaan. Have you ever done a Google, Google map search on New England? What are the names of like most of the towns there? They're na- named like Salem and Bethel and Hebron and Shechem. They literally, literally thought they were walking into the new promised land which brought about their often cruel treatment of native peoples whom they wrongly thought of as the Canaanites, who were living in the land and whom God had brought the sword of judgment to. This is a horribly naive misunderstanding of the old to new covenant with disastrously sinful results. In the new covenant, God covenants not with nation states, but through his son with individuals who have had their sins forgiven, who then covenant together in local churches, to represent to the world his heavenly rule. His kingdom is not of this world. So while it is true that God delegates authority to governments to keep peace and to bring justice against evil, to paraphrase several other authors, it is not nation states who are described as Mount Zion, the the mountain of God in which the glory of God dwells. It is not political bodies 
It is the church. It is not political halls of power who will come to Christ as the bride, the wife of the Lamb. It is the church. While many institutions contribute to earthly life and human flourishing, there are political institutions, social institutions, educational institutions, and so on and so on. Jesus did not promise to build any other institution beside his church. This is not to say that Christians who are elected to political office may not and should not seek to persuade and even pass moral legislation, so-called moral legislation. There is no legislation that is not moral legislation. Every law upholds some understanding of morality and values. But passing moral Christian legislation, electing Christian leaders, taking the country back for Christ through political influence is not our greatest hope. If nothing else, because it's just historically foolish. Which Christian state has ever endured past like a generation or two? We can see Calvin's Geneva or Lutheran city-states in Germany with explicitly Christian governments who then completely deny and reject the gospel within like the time of their grandchildren. The state is just not able to accomplish what we want it to. Jesus gave his authority not to elected governors, not to presidents or kings to decide who belongs within the kingdom of heaven. Jesus did not give his authority to governments to separate between the sheep and the goats, to protect and to preserve the right doctrine of God. Whom did he give this authority to? Whom did he give his authority to, to separate and to discern who belongs to him, to protect and preserve the gospel of God, the church? To the church, Jesus gives the keys of the kingdom of heaven to declare who belongs to him and who does not. It is through the church and their preaching of the good news of the kingdom of Jesus, a kingdom that is not of this world, a kingdom that grows very slowly and often inobservably, like a tiny mustard seed growing slowly like yeast in and through the dough of society, with words of persuasion to the conscience that sins might be forgiven rather than with a sword of coercion that sins might be eliminated. You hear that? That's the difference. He gives to the church words of persuasion that sins might be forgiven, not a sort of coercion that they might be eliminated. And so to quote another, the church is not a system that can be tweaked to go along with the times. It is the body of a living man, Christ Jesus, whose Holy Spirit is the one and only source of Christian power in this world. And get this, The Holy Spirit is a political liability. The Holy Spirit does not work on our timeline and often not how we want him to. He is not a skilled wordsmith of put-downs. He is not a ruthless social media assassin. He is not based. He is the spirit of a crucified savior, a king whose throne was a cross. Christianity is cruciform-shaped. Our faith and our way of being and living is shaped like the cross, just as we considered last week, the body of Christ, the church, is both a body, is an institution of power and victory, but simultaneously of weakness and of vulnerability. We are a body of power because we carry the gospel of Jesus, of which we are not ashamed. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and then to the Greek. But we are simultaneously a body of of weakness, not praying for suffering, not asking for it, but absolutely being willing to for the good of our neighbor, for the good of our enemy, for the good of our religious enemy, our cultural, political enemy, or otherwise. 
Our culture today tells us that enemies are people to be crushed, are people to be dominated or owned, rather than people to be loved, prayed for, and served. Jesus spoke with courage and conviction, and we should live into that. There is much to take from the book of Joshua about speaking with courage and conviction, but crushing and owning is not the way of Jesus. At least as he is working now in this age in the power and the uh, gospel-saving work of his church. And so Don Carson once put it like this, if God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. If he had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. But God perceived that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death. And so whom did he send? He sent us a savior. The holy war now given to the church is first a war against internal sin, is a holy war that by the power of the Spirit, we root out and kill what is killing us, what is sapping and robbing us of joy, what is sapping and robbing God of the glory that he is owed and deserves for his glory and for our ever-increasing joy. And then the holy war externally is now transformed from this of a holy war of the sword to now a ministry of reconciliation, Paul calls it, that we offer life through the saving death of Christ. That as we thought about a few weeks ago, that we are actually less Israel here and more the Gibeonites. Those who were once far off that have now been brought near. And so we, today, we plead with our fellow Canaanites to turn from there, to turn from our wickedness and to come to the king of peace so that wherever we live in in the United States or in North Korea, whether we live in Nashville or San Francisco, whether we live in Tampa or in Albuquerque. There are countless people around us, wherever we live, who need the saving gospel of Jesus, who need to come to the Savior for his peace, to bring them near to God by the blood of Christ. Wherever we live, our cities do not exist for the church, but our church exists for the city. This is a Understanding that changes our perspective on all of this. Wherever we live, our cities do not exist for our well-being. But we, as the church, God's kingdom being made known on earth, we exist for the cities in which he has put us. Now, living in societies of greater social trust is nice, and it should be worked for, but it is not our hope. So we must be careful that while Jesus has promised that he will return He will establish his heavenly kingdom on earth once and for all to rule over his church and to rule over all creation for eternity so that eternally there will be no more sin at all, whether out there in the world or in here, in my own heart and within the life of the church. There will be no more confusion. There will be no more rebellion. There will be no more unrighteousness. There will be no more celebrating of unrighteousness. There will be no more injustice. There will be no more loss. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more death. The kingdom is certain and sure, but it is a kingdom that we patiently long for and pray for. The kingdom of Christ in the New Testament is never something that God's people are commanded to build The kingdom of Christ is not something that we advance. Every single time 
The New Testament writers and Jesus himself talk about the kingdom of God. It is doing something apart from us. It is breaking in. The kingdom of God is always something that we passively, passively observe as God builds, as God advances. That doesn't mean that we are passive, that we put up our feet and just watch the world burn. I hope you did not hear in anything that I said tonight that suggestion, but that we have a right expectation for what we hope to see in our lifetimes. That this age is an age of sin. This age is an age of injustice and of suffering and of loss after overwhelming loss. But this age will not be an eternal age. He will come again. I know I went a little long tonight and maybe without a ton of ultra spiritual application for your week this week. I don't know if there's a ton to take away. We'll circle back to what the inheritance of the land might more practically mean for our lives next week. So I hope to see you next Sunday and think through these chapters together even more deeply. But since tonight was unusual, I want to close us tonight with something else unusual. I stumbled on a congregational call and response reading based on Joshua 12 this week, and I'm going to have us read this together. I don't think we've ever done anything like this in a sermon time. Uh, Not only are there prompts that we're going to click through here for you to read, but there are even some prompts for the women to respond to and some prompts for the men to respond to, and then some prompts for all of us to respond to. So pay attention, stay with me, and I hope this works deeply in our hearts and lifts our eyes more clearly to Jesus. We have this, Jared? Yeah. The final conquest of evil human rulers awaits the return of our Lord Jesus. Today we celebrate that coming day of victory by our Savior in a way that Joshua 12 celebrated that of an earlier Savior. We do this to embrace Jesus as our triumphant King of kings and Lord of lords. Let me ask you this, women. On that day, how many pharaohs will remain who cruelly enslave God's people? None. How many Caesars will remain who martyr the Christian faithful men? None. How many tyrants who beat, maim, and imprison believers? None. How many mayors who cater to the rich and ignore the poor? None. Women, how many crooks who defraud the weak and the vulnerable and the elderly? How many kings, everyone? How many presidents, dictators, or military leaders will remain besides Jesus? None. How many kings other than Jesus will rule our hearts and lives, everyone? None. John wrote in his vision, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Christ Church, how many kings will we serve? Other than Christ. I think I was supposed to say one. This is going to be better. John wrote in his vision, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters. We just said this. How many kings will we serve? This is better, everyone. One. Amen. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful that you are God eternal, that you have reigned over the cosmos from eternity past, that you created out of love, that you created humanity out of love, that we might experience deeper joy of knowing you, 
And yet that even in our rejection of you, in our rebellion, in our cosmic treason against you, you did not leave us. You sent your son to live and to die on our behalf that we might have joy, that we might have life, that we might know you, that we might be near to you, that we might be reconciled to the eternal God of glory. Glory. What glory? What a gospel. What good news that you would save sinners that you would, in your wisdom, use the, the wisdom of the church to build, to protect, to preserve the glory of God, to, the, to pr- protect the, the right doctrine of the saving gospel of Jesus. Help us to see rightly. Help us to expect rightly. Help us to pray rightly. Help us to uh, be concerned about the things that we ought to be concerned about. Help us to speak against injustice. Speak against unrighteousness but to speak in such a way that we are filled with love, that we, are pers- that we are filled with persuasion, that we are filled with the words of life, that our words might not just bring condemnation, but they might bring reconciliation. This is the ministry that you have given us. Help us to want it more. Help us to love our neighbor more. And we pray in all of these things, because there is one king, The King Jesus, who reigns now at the helm of the cosmos, who reigns now over our church, who reigns over our lives, we pray now, King Jesus, we pray now that you would come. Even now, come quickly. Put an end to injustice. Put an end to unrighteousness. Put an end to the rebellion in our own hearts. We want to be made new fully and completely. We want to be rid of the presence of sin forever. So come, Lord Jesus, we pray. To you, O Lord, to you alone who are worthy of our worship, our lives, our existence. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.